This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast. Powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We are delighted to bring you season four of Driven by Data, the podcast. And our aim remains exactly the same, to bring you some of the most respected and recognized thought leadership figures from the world of data analytics to share their knowledge, ideas, use cases, and insights across how they've tackled some of the industry's most trending topics and challenges. All that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season four. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Smith, who is the Director of Data for the Metropolitan Police. So, Amy, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm genuinely excited. <laughs> well, not not many of my guests say that, so we'll, <laughs> we'll take that as a very positive start. So uh, thank you very much. Um, so where we always start, Amy, is by asking our guests to give themselves a, I guess, a brief introduction into their background, I guess, journey up until this point in time, if you uh, would be so kind. Yeah, and I'm sorry if it sounds a bit of a life story, but um, so I'm originally from Nottingham and all I really wanted to do was uh, continue my season ticket and watch Nottingham Forest endlessly in and out and become an actress. But um, my dad had other ideas and said that I needed to get a real job. So I studied criminology um, at university and I really got a bug for looking at trying to understand offenders, trying to understand offending. And as a result, um, I joined the Metropolitan Police Service 22 years ago. I can't believe it, but 22 years ago as an intelligence analyst. And I absolutely love that job. And I've, I've done intelligence analysis on burglary, robbery, you know, your, your traditional kind of property offences and moved into other areas like uh, the paedophile unit I worked in for a good three years. And eventually found myself going up the line management chain and managing how intelligence analysis works. And that kind of peaked when I got I was one of the first members of police staff to actually do a cops job, if that makes sense, running covert intelligence feeds. And my job was to manage well, stand up and manage a team that would use covert feeds of data and analysis drawn from our covert human intelligence sources, our lawful interception basically wiretapping for want of a better word um undercover officers and the like and that was an amazing job and really showed me how to be honest more high-end serious organized crime groups really work and by gosh they're good with data um I then I then left that kind of intelligence field and, and had an opportunity to go on a leadership course which the Met backed me to go on when I came off that course um, it sounds awful to say, but they didn't really know what to do with me. So they developed me to this particular <laughs> sort of director level, but they didn't really have a job for me. Um, so it wasn't quite the best planning. But um, in the end, I, I ran the data transformation program for the Met. That was five years ago. After three years of really fighting very hard for some investment, um, I managed to stand up the data office to get the design delivered. I'm now the director of that data office. And it has expanded and gone from strength to strength. Um, because I haven't got enough to do, I decided to also volunteer to kind of chair the National Police Data Board, the first of its kind, which is basically trying to do the same thing, but 
coalesce 43 independent data controller chips um, to try and do things once and well. And I've got an amazing group of volunteers who help me do that from across policing. But so I'm pretty busy. But that's my essential journey. I want to be an actress and I still haven't started. <laughs> or, or maybe you haven't you've just not realized yet maybe I'm just very dramatic thing, yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's just one big yeah um bbc i play a documentary that you're that you're living out sounds pretty sounds pretty cool to me um all right fine so i guess obviously we have a lot of listeners from many different countries so just give a, give us a very high level overview of what slash who the metropolitan police are slash is if you would so all around the world, the Metropolitan Police Service is better known as Scotland Yard. If you say mm-hmm. Scotland Yard to anywhere in the world, they understand what that means. Well, essentially, the Metropolitan Police Service is Scotland Yard. It's his headquarters, but it's so much more than that. So the Metropolitan Police Service is the um, police service for London. 9.39 million people, um, you know, 270 different nationalities and languages represented in that city, capital city. And we are on 24-7, making sure that we can keep as many people safe as possible. And when and where that can't happen, that we treat them with kindness and respect and make sure that they get the policing that they deserve. But it is a it's the largest one of the largest police forces in the world. Uh, probably New York's probably the only bigger one but um, yeah we're very it's a brand that is known and it's usually known by Scotland Yard yeah absolutely yeah and probably James Bond and other type of movies like like that right where they're they're getting involved um <laughs> yeah although we're usually the ones that get it wrong and James Bond has to solve it which is not not totally fairly representative but you know it's how it's how it plays out in cinema yeah it's close maybe the closest to acting you, you're gonna get there maybe but uh, <laughs> um <Yeah>. fine <laughs> um so I guess Obviously, you, you, so you stood up the, the data office there at the Met, the Met Police, right, that now you are leading. Um, what instigated that? Like, what was, uh, apart from the fact that, they, you know, they developed you and then didn't know what else to, <laughs> to do with you, maybe. But, Wait, but I guess what what, what was the driver behind that? Hang on, there's something here that we can really develop and use for the benefit of our organisation. I mean, two th- two things eat with equal weight, if I'm honest with you. And um, and I'll start with the negative, which many organisations will probably recognise, which is we were about when was it about six years ago the most complained about organisation to the ICO for not responding in a timely way to right of access requests, for not processing freedom of information on time, and we had had a series of what what now would be called data you know data issues but at the time were called communication errors you know we lost the gangs the gangs violence matrix was a very high profile and negatively seen um bit of data capability that the organization had rolled out to be honest just to try and make sense of volume but they were we were on the hook with the ico so that's the first thing and the second thing was a fantastic wonderful amazing best ever in her generation leader of policing called Cressida dick who just knew that we were sitting on an absolute gold mine and and to, and to mine that gold of data, she needed a data office. So she really backed the idea of building a data office so that we could harness the value our data brings. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I always find it fascinating when there's stories like that where there is someone influential that puts their name to it and says, yeah, this is this is the future, right, which, you know, kind of paves the way for obviously not easy, but makes it easier. I guess there'd have probably been a lot more resistance if you didn't have that sponsor, right? Oh, totally. I mean, investment is linked to your highest lead, leadership level, right? So that's helpful for me. That was helpful for yeah. me and how will be helpful for others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, fine. So I, I guess I'm, what I'm really 
conscious of here, Amy, is I want, a lot of the guests we speak to, as you know, because you mentioned to me that, that you listen to the podcast, they come from big brand commercial organizations that people will know and probably buy their products from and, you know, at least know who they are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what I tend to find through all of the community led stuff that we do, you know, hosting this podcast, hosting events, et cetera, et cetera. What typically transpires is that many organizations are have the same types of problems and challenges, but it's maybe just slightly different context or different size and scale. But it's normally we're to- all normally talking about the same thing. I'd love to know whether that applies in your world, given how different it is. I mean, data is data, right? But obviously the way that you use it in comparison to I don't know how a gym shark might use it are obviously very very different and you know totally different causes of course so um if i were to say to you what is the biggest challenge that you know the met police as a data office faces what 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 would that be gosh i don't know if you picked up my big huff but it's got maybe it's what time of day you're, you're asking me that question <laughs> depends on my answer so if i'm honest with you I, I know you want me to say one so i'll try and do that but it's can I say two just because I'm genuinely feeling it today so the first one is and I know that every podcast you've ever done says exactly the same thing which is data literacy so even if I've got loads of backing even if I've got loads of people talking about it even if I endlessly pretend to be an actress but actually my content is all about data I, I can I can take hundreds of people thousands of people with me but at the end of the day if they don't know how to put data in why it's important and the quality of that data it's all lost and anything, any other tech investments we make to try and make things easier for them goes out the window and there's no return on investment. So data literacy is probably my biggest challenge. And at the other end of the scale of data literacy, the people who think they get it and don't and they think it's all about artificial intelligence and tech and don't care about laying good foundations. That's probably my my biggest challenge. I would say, though, my second thing, and I'm really feeling it today, which is why I'm saying it is where data sits in the level of import in an organization of that runs around the clock 24-7 and is under incredible scrutiny and its people are its greatest asset. And every organization says that because it, it's the right to set the right tone. But in this case, it is. The data does not turn up at three o'clock in the morning and have a roll around outside the pub. The data does not turn up and go hands on for a domestic violence victim and try to get them into the right sort of support services. The data helps that. But if we don't have cops who do that well, the whole of our foundations fall down. And trying to say, can you invest in me and not more of those is a really hard sell, a really hard sell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and when you put it like that, that makes perfect sense, right? Because it's, I guess, success is often viewed then of the ability of the people that you hire and data is something that maybe fuels them to be better at what they do. Exactly. Okay. And that's where data storytelling and trying to connect what we do to the front line and front line delivery is kind of the I've gone around the loop of doing that wrong. And now I'm in the loop of trying to get that right. But um, yeah, it's hard. That's that's the hardest, just the how data is perceived as a profession. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's interesting. And I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk right about the implications of working for a legacy organization and again in a commercial world i think we all have a good understanding and grasp of what some of those challenges are i guess how has data and analytics historically been used and perceived to be used within the world of policing so i find this fascinating and this is the to be honest the content of most of my talks to cops now but 
but really we've never not used data and analysis and and the reason I say that is because when the police was set up in 1829 by Robert Peel, one of the Peelian principles is that the success of the police should be measured by the absence of crime. And what that means is right from the start, we were having to collect what we were doing, how much of it we were doing and whether it was successful. So performance data, essentially. And then as science kind of came on board and you've got fingerprinting and DNA, you're starting to get into the realms of how the analysis of that type of data, your biometric data and your fingerprinting, how that solved, it cracked open so many cases once that technique and skill was applied and the professionals who do it. And then after that, you've got intelligence, which is something that at the moment I think is where policing really coalesces its understanding of data and analytics, which is essentially who's doing what, where are they doing it, when are they doing it, why are they doing it, how are they doing it and how do we stop them? And largely that's an intelligence function. I actually think um, where we're going is much more about actually and how can we get data and machine learning to really tell us things we didn't already know and where we should already be and that's the exciting thing but to try and link people back to we've always done this guys we just called it evidence or forensics or intelligence and once you get them past that they sort of see that data is not particularly new and is part of their dna themselves but um it's taken me a long time to work that out and sell it to them but that's kind of we've always done it we've always done it how fast uh, I find that so fascinating because you know you hear you, people stand up on stage right or come on podcasts like this and they talk about evidence-based decision making right and, and <laughs> all of your data historically has been used as evidence which is um yeah really interesting the challenging the challenging thing about it though Kyle is that um I because it's evidence and evidence is something cops understand and also it's really part of the court process so you, so you, what you disclose what you don't disclose how that works the whole of policing is driven by where we're trying to end up which is send, send the baddies to prison for want of a better word but evidence is something you keep under wraps you know you don't show mm. your hand on your evidence you don't want to give the tri criminals the tip off that you may might be proactively targeting them but data now is the is the doorway to transparency and trying to get people to get out of that evidence need to know mindset into we should share it what can it tell our partners if we gave it to NHS what could they do with it if local authorities had a look at it and that's the that's where we are right now we're at that sea change of going from an evidence-based mindset we need to, that to be kept, but not the evidence need to know mindset. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolute sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. Talk us through the journey then. So obviously you've been in that role now, what, five, five years? Have we got yeah. that right? Yeah. Well, four years as director of data because, and I know this because the data office was born in September 2019 and my son was born in September 2019, but my son only took nine months to gestate and it took me three years to get the data <laughs> office through the business case process. But, but yeah, so it's, it's four years. Yeah, fair enough. So talk, I guess talk us through, I mean, you've spoken there at a high level on the direction you're trying to travel in, but talk us through that that journey and I guess the things that you uncovered, the things that you've had to tackle and I guess how things are now different to maybe what they were at that point in time when the data office was, was born, for want of a better phrase. I'm interrupting today's episode to bring you a quick message from one of our latest podcast sponsors, Cambridge Spark. I've been doing a bit of work in collaboration with Cambridge Spark over the last several months and I feel that their message needs to be heard 
and ultimately I feel it complements what we do here at Orbition Group very well. Did you know that according to Boston Consulting Group, only one in four organizations have the expertise they need for successful digital transformation? And as a data leader, you're pressured to link data initiatives to business impacts and the value that that creates. But as we all know, often inadequate data skills across the organization can be the thing that holds you back. Cambridge Spark has a solution. Through government-funded apprenticeships, they help organizations like yours to build data talent without the risks and costs of hiring. Blending online learning with on-the-job work, your team gains the technical skills that they need, you know, Python, machine learning, etc., alongside the business abilities like data storytelling. Apprentices approach projects with specific outcomes in mind. Their learning spreads to democratize data usage across your organization and drive efficiencies. The outcome, a workforce and culture empowered by data to achieve more. If you're ready to equip your team with the data skills needed to accomplish your goals, visit cambridgespark.com forward slash driven to learn more about upskilling through free apprenticeships. That's cambridgespark.com forward slash driven. Cambridge Spark, digital skills for workforce transformation. Yeah, so when it was, uh, when it, oh God, I have to start talking about birthing because it's given me traumatic flashbacks, but when, when the data officers became into being, it was kind of built from two precursor units and we added some fluff around the edges. Um, and it was built from the data protection office and the performance analysis unit, two functions that had never come together whatsoever, but I was grabbing hold of whatever I could to start to build the data capabilities. Um, we didn't know what data we'd got. We didn't know where it was. We'd got no governance over any of it. And we were pumping out dashboards at a rate of knots, like because everyone wanted to get performance and everyone wanted their own version of performance. Literally, people were using our dashboards to fight against our other dashboards. It was just <laughs> a complete mess. Um, and I, I, trying to get people to understand that data wasn't about performance. It was about so much more than that it was really hard. But where... It took me a long time to convince people to keep investing in it because what they saw was the more the data office looked, the more problems we found. So once you start to calculate how many data assets have you got, what's the quality of them, who's using them, do we have any controls whatsoever, hmm. that comes with risk or issues really, but comes with a need to mitigate and largely a need to make some difficult decisions. So if we've never deleted anything since 1829, and that's not the truth, but it might sometimes feels like it. We're going to have to do something about getting rid of the data we shouldn't be holding. And that feels in, a, in an organization or a career, the policing is a career where, from police officers anyway, they don't stay in post very long. Two or three years and they go up or two or three years they move across. So no one's got a long term time horizon. And police and crime commissioners don't have a long term time horizon because they're elected. So trying to get people to do something about legacy is hard. So constantly talking about legacy meant that people didn't want to give me money to build the engineering and science capability. And to be honest, that took me a lot longer than I expected because the police want to do things with data science. But um, I had to prove some value. So the way I did that, to be honest, in short, was I hired some consultants in to come and sit alongside our people who got the engineering and the science skills that we'd only got in small part and then start to show the value of that on specific things like um doing an operational review, looking at whether when we deployed resources to a particular crime issue, did it actually make a difference or not? Um, and I had some really, to be honest, crusty cops who were very senior who I got to front that to board. Mm. 
And that, to be honest, was a turning point when I realized I'm not in the data fight on my own. I need to use people from the business to talk the stories. And the more professionally credible they were at policing, the better people listened to what they were saying about what they wanted to do with data. Um, And that really, really helped. Where we are now is we're twice as big as we were when we started. So I've got about 300 staff across governance, management, privacy rights, uh, analytics, engineering and science. We will grow again by another 50 posts um, because we're introducing a new technological system. People are now starting to talk about data. That's the difference. People are talking about data as if it matters. They come to me and ask questions. And that really matters because they would have bypassed me and done it themselves and downloaded it and you know, <laughs> lost lost it on a train or something. Um, and people respect what the data professionals have got to say. And that's the key shift. In the new year, we will have our cloud-based data platform where we will have a data science environment. We've got a pipeline built so we know what data sets are going to go in. You know, we've got investment for a data platform. I didn't get that the first time around five years ago. People didn't get the point of it. Hmm. sorry i've waffled on there you're gonna have to cut that down aren't you but i just no, no, there's no. so much that's changed no, for the no, better no, not at all that's i mean it's all it's all very insightful and interesting stuff what was the change then that's i guess what was the thing that is, is underpinning the change in i guess appetite and behavior and attitude towards okay this is something we should be taking seriously and it's not just a you know backward looking metric of did we respond quickly enough or is you know can that be used as evidence like what, what's been the the driver for that change so ironically um you, i mean i don't know how closely everyone follows the headlines but cressida dick didn't stay in office as long as she was expecting to and we got a brand new commissioner and he was even more into data and its use precision data policing essentially than ever before and his arrival mark rowley this is his arrival and talking about that meant that his whole top team started talking about it in a in a kind of bid to sort of get behind him and his strategy that definitely helped to be honest by this point i think we'd really started to get some advocates in the business who were also on it rather than challenging everything we'd did, sort of more talking about where we were going and what we were doing and we almost got a second wave of leaders like I say that two or three years on a whole cycle has gone through but we've now got people who've been trained in this and understand it a bit more than the last lot mm. yeah that's really really interesting so I guess opportunity wise then what does the future look like because I guess you're an organization that has used data all probably unbeknownst to them you know they they just don't call it data right but they they use it to as you put kind of catch the baddies and solve crimes and it's it's evidence that happens after the facts right whereas i guess what you're trying to get to is how do we create an environment where data allows us to stop things from happening before they happen right which obviously is the best of all worlds as far as policing goes i'm sure yeah and takes us back to that pelian principle the absence of crime right so so to me, the opportunities are on three levels and some present greater opportunities than others. So there's kind of an organisational level, an operational level and then an individual level. And when I say a level, I mean of decision making. So we've focused as an organisation since 1829 on operational decision making. And that that I think we're very good at that. What have we got? What do we know? How will it work for prevention purposes or, or like I say, you know, responding to... A, a trend in, in, in a rise in burglary or violence on the streets of London or gang warfare. But 
and we'll continue to do that. We'll probably just do that better and faster. And we'll probably get ourselves to a place where the digital capability means we can be more successful and process larger data sets quickly. Communications data is our biggest um, problem and, and opportunity in that space. But organizationally, I think our opportunity to truly understand demand and supply, linking up data sets we already hold that says, what's the demand coming in? Have we got officers and staff with the right skills? Are they in the right place? And how do we know? And how dynamic can we make that? The opportunity is huge because if we can do that well, we can have conversations with the public about where we're effective and where we're not. Because at the moment we're run by media headlines, as I'm sure you've seen endlessly every time you open a newspaper or read a news app. But but we need to start using organisational decision making. And I think only data can do that for us. I think that's really important. I think individual decision making is where we could really change the face of policing. So what everyone at the moment is obsessed with what data and kit we put on a cop. right? So body worn video has fundamentally changed how policing works for the better. Right. We've got evidence of stuff happening and we can prosecute in DA, d domestic abuse cases in, in a place where a woman might usually a woman would not want to later after the effect. But we can still target an offender. But to me, it's about what can we push to a cop? Imagine if we're able to push to a handheld device. You're in this. I can see you're in this geographic area. These are the wanted missing people you should be looking for. These are the people you should go and speak to to build community relations. These are the crimes that happened in the, in the last plot. Keep your eyes out for another burglary of a similar nature or or this yeah. particular gang member. So pushing information to individual cops will be, I think, could revolutionise the the policing model. And the only other thing I would say about the opportunities is we collect endless amounts of data we've got millions and millions of records we we collect on policing activity how many calls how fast did we respond how many cars how many cops going where to what crime how fast did we investigate do you see what i mean we count the things policing does but our data if we looked at it differently could tell us what is it like to be a victim of, of violence against women and girls offense we could take a victim lens on our own data and probably see pretty quickly through data mapping how we could improve our service to London, mm. to those victims. We could also say, when you have this trend and this trend and this trend, this always happens. So let's start preventing crime. Let's think about preventative measures in a different way. Again, data could get us out of that, could help us with that. We just need to unlock ourselves from this obsession with catching offenders. <laughs> I don't mean we should stop catching offenders, but we need to think at and also, and so what, and why? So it's not just an offender lens. We look at everything through. Mm. That's yeah. I mean, this is so interesting and fascinating. Um, I mean, there's so there's much. A lot. How? Yeah. How, so 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 here's my question then, and this is me thinking out loud, and um, this is where I always get myself in, into trouble, Amy. But how do you prioritise then, right? Because I guess if I don't know, let's just say you are for. As an example, you are Coca-Cola, right? And you make soda. <clears throat> now, there's a, probably a million things that you could do with data as well. But how important are they in the grand scheme of things? Well, you know, it's probably related to how many millions or potentially billions Coca-Cola make over the course of a given year, right? Fine. In your world, though, the prioritization can, I mean, if done wrongly or incorrectly i don't know if there's a wrong answer to this but you know if it's not done right let's say there there are obviously potential life and death situations so there's there's obviously loads you can tackle how do you prioritize 
where you start, what the best use of time and resources, what, what, which capabilities you build to solve which problems, etc. I mean, that just feels like something so big. I, I'm almost getting overwhelmed just thinking, yeah, just thinking I, about it. And it is over. I'm not going to lie to you. There are days when I could just go and cry in the loo, you know, because it's so lonely being the only person that has to think about it. Um, but at other days, it's really exciting and amazing. But I think so how we prioritize. So probably this this is a stock answer you'd get from anyone. We prioritize based on the business strategy. And there is a business. There's, there's a new Met for London strategy that says, how are we going to a turn around the organization? But B, how are we going to service the people of London against the things that they want to see us targeting? So the public kinds of helps us set that strategy. Okay. My job, though, is to then say, so which do we have the data capacity and capability, either in the asset itself or in the skills and products we produce to enable that to fly bits of that strategy to fly? And that's how we prioritize it. And where we don't, Ironically, then we've got another data transformation program coming to build the next wave of data capabilities to do exactly that. But so at the moment, for instance, it will be trying to reduce violence, um, targeting uh, violence against women and girls. So when I say violence, I mean, usually um, young men stabbing young men on the streets of London. Then there's violence against women and girls, which is incredibly underreported. We've got to better respond when people actually call 999. And we're doing that through something called right care, right person. So there are priorities for the business. And I just have to make sure that my analysis and engineering capability is pointing its products at the right thing. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But don't get me uh... wrong. Everybody wants data. Everybody wants it yesterday. And everybody wants more than they're actually lawfully allowed. You know, like partners (laughs) is crying out for us to share data. And I want to, but they want, they basically want to log onto a police system and have a look and they can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, even from a, a business or organiz, organizational strategy level, I mean, even that seems just so large, right? Because how do you choose what the right answer is there, you know, into when there's all of this crime going on, all this potential crime, and, you know, it's like it's, it's, you've almost got to pick the, the, the lesser of two evils. It, it kind of feels like a little bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. And um, and, I'm, and I'm sure I'm making mistakes even now as I speak about what I should have been targeting with data and I'm not. But I just um, there's so much to do. I can't, I, you know, <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel a little bit, but I just haven't got enough capacity to do everything that they all want me to do. And the teams do a cracking job to try and keep up with me and them and the demand. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's jump in. So I guess we're, we're kind of creeping into the realms here of, I guess, what the Met Police as an organisation constitutes to be valuable or what things are more valuable than other things, I guess, in, in some way, shape or or form. Now, obviously, we talk on this podcast a lot about the importance of delivering value in quotation marks. And obviously, value is often in the eyes of the beholder and it's very contextual to that organisation and it means different things to different people, etc. Um, but I guess how they define it as success or whether value is realized or, or or not how do you go about that in in the context of your environment because i guess you know again in a commercial organization you know normally everything is driven towards some kind of metric which usually relates back to some kind of business performance which normally relates back to top or bottom line or not getting fined so you know mitigating risk and typically that's kind of 
it right but obviously in your world value is very different and i mean i've had the chief data officer of West Point Academy on, right, from the US um, Armed Forces. And I kind of asked him the same question to say, you know, when sometimes it's literally a matter of life life or death, how, you know, how, how much investment is enough investment to warrant what return again on in quotation marks? You know, how, how, do, how do you divine value in the police force? And I guess how do, do you think that will change over time? Just a quick one. I'm interrupting today's episode to let you know about our TACT assessment. Our TACT assessment was designed and created to allow you to benchmark yourself against other organisations in your effectiveness in hiring data and analytics talent in today's market. Effectively, we cover three key areas. The internal perception of data analytics within inside your organisation. The external perception of your data analytics brand in the current talent landscape. And the third component is your organization's operational effectiveness, which covers things like time to hire, the recruitment process itself, um, remuneration, location, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Them three components are effectively what allow you to understand how effective you can be in attracting and retaining the best data and analytics talent. And the best part, we do all of that for free and put it in a nice shiny brochure for you. I don't want to bore you with the details, so if you're interested in learning more, navigate yourself towards www.obitiongroup.com forward slash talent hyphen advisory. Yeah, I believe in hope so. Um, I, the reason I say <laughs> the reason I say that, the reason, sorry, I'm being flippant. The reason I say that is because at the moment I don't think policing, and this is not just about the Met, this is about the sector of law enforcement. I don't think we have really connected the word value with data. And we we absolutely have a, everybody gets up every day and has a really important core mission. We understand why we've got out of bed and what we've come to do. Um, and that is really easy to attach yourself to. But I don't think, I don't think people outside of the data space in policing really understand why data is a valuable asset and how it can unlock more of the value that they get out of bed for every day. And, my my mission is to change that and I know you've had him on here and he won't mind me if he doesn't listen I will kill him but Davin Crowley Sweet to me has is he's miles ahead in his thinking and his delivery on this in the public sector and I, and if I can do even half of what he's done before I retire in about 50 years time <laughs> then and achieved what he's achieved in high, at national highways around an organisation being able to value the economic impact of the data it holds, then I'll be, I'll, I will die a happy woman. And the reason I say that's important is at the moment, the way police funding works, the way any funding works in a public body is it's usually on a year by year basis. You can't do any long term planning for anything, but particularly not in the data space. I think policing has something unique to offer UK PLC. But I don't think we're able to articulate it. So one of the things I'd like to move towards is policing really understands the value of the data it holds and its unique place it has in keeping the public safe. So that's where I'd like to move it to. The challenge is policing has a number of missions and everyone expects us to deliver on all of them. So which data is valuable to maintaining or let's be honest right now, improving confidence in policing? We need to answer that question. Mm. Then we need to make sure it's high grade and used and act well and is accessible to the people that need it. But confidence in your territorial policing, you know, Mrs. Miggins's local area versus 
protecting us all from terrorists, the confidence levels are different and the expectation of what we do with data is different. The value of data to the perception of crime is different again. People don't want to be scared. They don't want to be able to walk down the street or go home or go to school or go somewhere or even in a police station. Let's be honest right now, looking at the headlines. People don't want to be frightened. So what data really matters is valuable to helping us reduce the perception of crime and the fear of crime. What data really matters for delivering a compassionate service? So when you are a victim of crime, are you treated nice with respect and kind? You know, did we spend enough time with you? Did we really understand what happens? Did we talk you through the process? What data tells us that? Because if people aren't, people won't call us for help if they don't think they're going to get the help that they need. So being compassionate is another part of value. You know, sharing information with our partners, that's considered value. What do we hold that they need that they can't get unless we share it? That's another facet to value. And the final one is how do you turn around broken relationships with communities in London and particularly the black community? How do we do that if at the same time we're trying to deploy AI and data science capabilities and machine learning on on data that we know is biased? We don't collect a nice, you know, bell curve of data because crime is not equally distributed and the people who call police aren't equally distributed because there isn't the same level of confidence in all communities and they don't all experience crime in the same way. So really thinking through the ethics of what capabilities we deploy and when, even if we can, is just as important. So sorry, I've done a long-winded answer, but I, it's it's not as simple as going. Our data is, is if we lost our data, it'd cost us £60 million. There is that element, which like any other organisation, but if we lost our data, reputation, public safety, the safety of our officers and staff, you know, it's just, it's too, it's too frightening to consider. And look at what happened in PSNI mm. when they lost, you know, they breached their own data on their own offices and names and, you know, yeah. frightening. Yeah. I think that this is why it, it's so interesting to me, this space is because, in the grand scheme of things, how many bottles of Coke, Coca-Cola sell is neither here nor there, really, when you're comparing it to what might happen if things go wrong in in your world, right? And, and I guess the prioritisation, like everything, all of the examples you give me there, you know, you, do you want to be afraid walking down the street? No. You know, are you scared of terrorists? Yes. Like, I, I don't want any of those things to happen to me, right? But there's limited time and resources and I'm sure accessibility of data and everything that comes with that that dictate actually what are the things that we can, you know, execute against and actually add value to. And and I mean, me and Davin talk about this quite a lot, right? But the he's, you know, as you said, he he's done something amazing in the articulation of that to, to really drive buy-in. But, you know, the the value of the asset, the value of data as an asset in of itself is something that most businesses just, you know, even big commercial businesses, right? They're, they're just not on that train of, of thought yet. And I know Davin constantly, I'm sure he won't mind me saying saying that he, you know, he's constantly complaining about how how people are, uh, you know, getting confusing value and and benefits right you know and uh, all that type of stuff which is which is really interesting you touched upon there the thing of bias right which i kind of as an organization that is on 24 7 365 days a year 
constantly in the press, you know, different headlines in the public eye, always, you know, everyone wanting to put the put the boot in when they can and, you know, scrutinise as much, as much as possible. How do you deal with the complexities that come with things like bias and ethics, especially when we start talking about AI and stuff? And obviously now you've got like human rights that are a big part of policing and all of that. How, how do you tackle that equation? So mainly it's about making sure we're in, I personally, but also the organisation is well positioned in terms of right at the top in terms of influencing policy setting in the home office legislative changes so dpdi bill comes in in the new well whenever it's going to come in it's supposed to be coming in in the new year we've been you know we've really lobbied hard in that space and worked well with the home office about the changes we want to see made to allow us to do more with data but also cognizant of protecting people's privacy rights so we're right up there and in it for influence for that um at a more local level, so within the service, we have an external um, ethics committee that we take our kind of new contentious um, ideas to, to say, is this a go or not? And we get some, you know, constructive and quite firm feedback from there. Um, we work the in the DPIA process that we, I'm assuming everyone else, certainly in the UK has, um, we weave the ethics questions into there too, just because you can, should you? And uh, we've got people in the business who talk to our kind of DPIA advisors, making sure that they understand what they're trying to do. So we, we've got quite a lot of scrutiny on our on ourselves and our process, particularly for ethics. Um, bias is harder because, like I say, the data we collect, we know is biased when we get it. The key is to how do you keep it as clean and as clean as possible and acknowledge that bias. And what I mean by clean is. Um, that the data fields are as, as filled in and they're as high quality. So we're not basically by the emission of good data within the set we've already got, we're not making it more biased. Does that make sense? Mm, so we've yeah. got data quality people that work, data quality teams that work on that. And we use our data science team to actually test for bias. So when a company, usually a company comes in and tries to sell us some tech, we will use our data science team to test that tech or that that system with our act with real data going through it to see if it does have a bias or not so so we kind of can test the tooling because people will try and sell us anything but we have quite high because you know everyone thinks that they can solve a problem and they think because it works and i'm not picking on coca-cola but you started it but like if it works for coca-cola <laughs> they go oh, we'll sell you it works really well for coca-cola like the data set is so different it's not it's not consensual some of the time. It's not clean most of the time. It's partial. You know, you can't apply great tech from one sphere into another. And the problem we have is the supplier market into law enforcement is very limited. People who actually get the data that we work on because they just want to apply a tech solution in. Um, so, yeah, it's really hard. Um, and we don't do anywhere near as much as we could do as a result. So the kind of operational ambition to be in the artificial intelligence space, we could do that. We could do that, yep. but we don't because the ethics and the implications of that are not worth it for the for the for the confidence the public needs to have in its police service. Because if you don't have confidence in your police service, to be honest, you've lost the streets, and then who have you got? I, who's going to look after London? So we maintaining that line of trying to deploy good capability that really works versus how it's accepted by the public of London. And they're not a homogenous group I, I, either who agree on what they think is good and what's bad. But yeah, so we do a lot of public consultation when something big comes out, like facial recognition is the latest one. Mm. 
Yeah. What last question then, conscious of, of time, Amy, but um where's where's the line on this stuff, right? So if you're using just, you know, very high level hypothetical, if you're gonna be driving a data capability that says, right, you know, what we're trying to do here is get to a point where we're thinking about prevention rather than, you know, solving the crime after it's happened and to, to lock the baddies up again. Um but where's that line ethically between you knowing that the baddie's a baddie and he's probably going to do something bad and fixing that, you know, d- doing something with the data to help you prevent something that might happen? Like, where where is that yeah. line ethically on that? That such a, seems like such a difficult equation. It is. And I think the honest answer is I don't think... I don't think policing should make that decision alone because of what we know about our data sets. And the reality is, because I think we could now look at our data sets and make a pretty good stab about who's probably going to go on and continue to offend. We could probably make a pretty good stab about who's on the who's on the up and coming. We, But we need to, if we're going to carry on down the road of looking at individuals, because we could also say who's going to be a repeat victim, right, in the next three months. But the ethics of that, I think, are, t- are something we don't want to cross a line on. However, if you say, does uh, would the public vote for a government where if we joined our data sets together from education through social services and policing and beyond into the prison system, if you joined those up, I think you'd have a better foundation for using prediction. You'd have a better foundation um, and rationale for forecasting what's going to happen next about individuals i'm not sure the appetite is there for the public albeit if i said do you want us to do that to find terrorists everyone would say yes so it's not it's not a linear question in that sense but i think to be on safer ground we need to do it across the public sector and across the right kind of data sets and services i think the different way to look at it to not cross the line is saying can, is there something we can do with geospatial analysis about risk risk in areas, about safer spaces? Is there something we can do, like I said before, about looking at what things are like from a victim's perspective and improving our services? Rather than preventing, we're giving a better service when it happens. Because unless we're doing prevention on areas or crime trends, you get back into the individual space. And, that, and it's the ethics on individuals that worries me. Because what yeah. I don't want to do is every time we run an algorithm, it says it's young black men in London. And that's because that's not the right answer. It's too, too dimensional. We need to understand what's going on in different parts of London for different communities in different ways and different crime types. And that I, I can't even draw the axes for that because it's multifaceted, isn't it? But yeah. that's that's where we will get to. We'll, we will have to have that conversation. I'd rather have the conversation to the public. Would you expect us to link up our data? Would you expect us to have to put your information in right when you come to us at the worst point in your life? Would you expect us to record your phone number so we can call you back? Would you like to have a service where you can report online and track your crime? You know, these are things that matter. And I'd rather us focus on, let's be honest, there's low hanging fruit rather than get into all of the izzy wizzy end of prediction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a fascinating conversation because it's it seems like the time of potential intervention where you can you know you can get that right before anything dreadful happens is so small because otherwise you get into the point you're trying to arrest people before they've done anything <laughs> exactly know? it's kind of like well hang on, i've not done anything yet all right i might have been on my way to but i didn't so you, there's nothing you can do about it right whereas it's yeah it's uh i've never really thought it's a about little it like bit that. 
Yeah, and it's a little bit like, and I'm sorry if this is a bit too um, woman-centric, but it's a little bit like I'm walking home from the train station and there's a man behind me and he's just walking a bit too close. And I don't feel confident enough to turn around and say, step back, get away. But I'm I'm papping it all the way home that I'm going to get jumped. Yeah. And it's that sort of feeling about we could we could do it and it might be the right thing to do. And that person that or that, you know, the, in the analogy, that person is the, it should be called out and we should deploy everything we can. But you don't because society isn't ready for it. I, I don't know if that analogy is right. You might have to. That analogy might not work, but no, no, it's no, a sense think, of yeah. you just you know something's not right or you know something could be done. But you just it's, we just can't yeah. make that move yet. I think we've yeah. got to prove to the public we're we're trustworthy with our data before we get into a space where we're using predictions, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, within that analogy, that person walking behind you could very well be an offender for that type of crime all the time right and it's very likely that probably something was going to happen but if that person would have been stopped and that was prevented and was arrested but at that point in time they'd done nothing wrong right so you yeah it's, yeah and it would get thrown out at court and then women's confidence in policing would go down you know because that that woman had a heart, heartfelt belief that something was going to happen and, and even herself might have rang 999 and then I'll feel like she's wasted time. She won't have wasted time. It's just the court system sets such a high bar. But, mm. you know, women talk amongst themselves about who the dodgy blokes are. Yeah. But we're just not, sorry, we've gone down another track now, but we there are just things about where you know you could do something, you know you can call it out, but you can't make accusations, you can't point the finger without evidence. And yeah. that's the that's the difficult place that we're in. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, Amy, what look a fascinating conversation. Absolutely um, loved this, considering how Great. dark dark it's been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, look, f- thanks so much for coming on and being so uh, open and, and candid. Um, I'm sure the 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 listeners will uh, will absolutely love it as well. And um, yeah, I good luck so. for everything that comes. Um, and yeah, hopefully see you uh, on screen one day. Yeah, yeah, me too, <laughs> Juliet Bravo. Have yeah. a lovely evening. It's been great right. to be on. Cheers. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. 